You know, part of what I love about that as we're going to just feast on Isaiah 40 today is the way that he weaves that picture. The God who sits above the circle of the earth. The God who is powerful and cosmic. And yet in this same chapter, he's going to call him our shepherd. But is he also personal and caring and close and even just, just praying that way, that's exciting for me because I wasn't here when the church was founded and I wasn't here when the building was built, but I'm here today. And I believe that God is still doing that, still leading us like a shepherd, still drawing us toward himself on that horizon that each of us is walking a journey to connect more with God. And so there are actually four key words in this chapter that he is going to use to help us understand exactly who that God is, how we relate to him. And, and the first one, you almost could guess from everything we've talked about in Isaiah, because the first word is comfort, and it comes right in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 40. He says, comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In fact, this is like the pivot point of the entire book of Isaiah. Now certainly the gospel and the promises are woven all the way through. But right here in chapter 40, th this is actually why we've been using this, this quilt, this comforter, as a, a reminder of everything that he's weaving together. All of the promises that God is bringing about the comfort he brings and who the comforter will be. And so for the remainder of the book, you see so much more of God speaking this, and, and, and it pivots here because he says, speak comfort because her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned. So that word comfort, it's important to realize is a whole lot more than just like a rub on the back or an arm around the shoulder. Hey, I know life stinks. I mean, um, sorry about that. Right? It's more than God just saying, hey, I know, I know it's rough, but I'm here. Now, that's really valuable, right? I mean, you know, if you've ever been in a moment of crisis, sometimes you don't need the other person to explain it or fix it. You just need them to put an arm around you and be there. So that is absolutely a part of this word, but it's more than that. The word also carries the idea to strengthen and to encourage. So that when God tells Isaiah, hey, my people need to hear, it's okay, I'm still with you, and I'm giving you strength, and I'm encouraging you to keep moving forward. All of that is packed into this word, comfort. Yes, comfort my people. Now the other one is pardoned. Now this goes probably deeper into the grammar than most of us care about. So just catch this, okay? The word pardoned here in the Hebrew is being used in the passive. The only other time that it's used in the passive in the Old Testament, it always refers to a blood sacrifice that has been accepted on your behalf so that you can be declared forgiven. Okay? So whenever this word is used, it means that there has been a blood sacrifice on your behalf so that you are declared forgiven. But Isaiah's audience, as they would be thinking back on these lines, they're sitting in captivity in Babylon. They're not at the temple. They're certainly not doing sacrifices. How in the midst of that can he say it's taken care of. A blood sacrifice has been made on your behalf. You see, already this is foreshadowing the comforter, the savior, 
Jesus Christ. Because as the New Testament explains what he was doing on the cross, it says that he was one sacrifice once for all. To cover all sin, past, present, and future. So that God's people, whose hearts return to him in captivity, find that the word of comfort is not only strength and encouragement, but forgiveness. And that idea of doubled for all of her sins, I know this, I know this feels unfair, but you're going to have to check out the Pathway video this afternoon to get a little deeper dive on that. But for now, just to tell you that undergirding that is this idea of grace and even more grace than they deserve or even need. Now, why would they need such a picture of comfort? Well, it helps to get a little snapshot of kind of the, the situation that Isaiah is writing into, because that's not just the name of the book. That's an actual person, right? Living in history, speaking these words 700 years before Christ came. So if you remember this map, you can see all of that Assyrian empire was the dominant force at this time of history. And then little tiny Jerusalem in that red circle at the bottom. Right, completely overwhelmed by the onslaught of the Assyrians that is coming right for them. So since we jumped from chapter 28 to chapter 40, from 28 last week to 40 today, it helps to back up just a few chapters to understand what's going on here. Because actually, Isaiah 36 through 39 are almost word for word with 2 Kings 18 through 20. So you can go back and read 2 Kings. You can go read Isaiah 36 to 39. I'll just summarize for you here some of the points that you see on the screen. Because Assyria had already been destroying cities in Judah. The king of Assyria claims that he's coming for Jerusalem. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, after so many terrible kings, Hezekiah turns to God and prays, we need your help. And he asks somebody else to pray with him. Isaiah. So Hezekiah and Isaiah pray and God delivers them. And people look at Hezekiah, somebody who's finally faithful. That's like the Bible describes as better than any king before him. And they actually start to wonder, could he be the one? Like, could this be the king, the Messiah, the savior that Isaiah was prophesying? Again, you can read the details there, but to, to keep it short, like every king before him, Isaiah has stumbles and falls and faults of his own. He was not the one. They're still waiting for someone greater. And so now as they've been taken into captivity, Israel is sitting in Babylon, Judah is sitting in Babylon, and they're starting to wonder if the promises are going to happen at all. They're starting to wonder if their past failure has undone God's future promises. And that's why, in this verse, he gives us our first key word. He is your comfort. He is your comfort. The arm around the shoulder, the strength, the encouragement, and the forgiveness. Because sitting in captivity in Babylon, they've lost loved ones in the war that brought them there. They've lost homes and businesses all of the circumstances swirling around them are terrible, and you add on top of that this terrible sense of regret because of their own sin, because of their own iniquity, because of how much they had rebelled against God, that they wonder, does he even care? He shouldn't, right? And yet he speaks to them, comfort, comfort my people. 
And so I wonder as you hear that, you could probably relate to some of it. You know, I, I see the prayer list every week. There are families right here in our Horizon community who have lost loved ones this week. You think about that diagnosis. Maybe you think about those regrets. When life feels like that, could God still have promises for you? As Isaiah 40 says that he is speaking comfort to you right now. So if Hezekiah was not the Messiah, if he was not the Savior who could bring the comfort, but this comfort is still being declared, well then who is it? And so it's kind of cool that the pivot point in this book also prophesies the pivot point of all of human history. If you look at verse 3, it says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, if those lines sound familiar, it's because we most often see them in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four of the biographers of Jesus, as they write the good news in the New Testament, all four of them quote Isaiah 40, verse 3, as fulfilled by John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who lived in the wilderness, eating locusts and eating honey, and he was the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. So now Isaiah is 700 years before Jesus saying, someday, someday, he will come. There will be a king of kings. There will be a savior. There will be someone who can fix the world and fix me. But this one, this voice of one crying in the wilderness, fulfilled in John the Baptist, he is the one who would not say, someday there will be a Messiah. He would say, there is a Messiah, and I'd like to introduce you to him. He's right there. That he was the one who could literally point at Jesus and say, now listen to him. And I want you to catch this because you remember we see this from time to time where the word Lord is in all capital letters like that. So whenever you see Lord or God in all capital letters, you know that in the Hebrew that is Yahweh, the personal name of God. Not just some God out there, not just some power in the universe, but that we know him by name, Yahweh. So think about what this means. All four gospel writers claim that John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus, is the voice preparing the way for the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. So he goes on to say, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That is who Jesus is. That their Messiah is not just a great king like Hezekiah who has his ups and downs. It's God himself. That's why he can actually do all these things. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. Right? Preparing that path for us to walk to him. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so verse 6, the voice said, cry out, and he said, what shall I cry? Well, here's part of the message. All flesh is grass... And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. Well, that's kind of nice, right? You, got, you all are so lovely, like flowers of the field. Well, let's keep reading here. The grass withers and the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Now, none of you have faded yet. 
but we know it's going to happen, right? It says, surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You see, part of what he's pointing out here is that too often we are so focused down here that we miss what God is doing. So often we're worried about all the things around us here. We're seeking comfort in our careers, our relationships, our our comforts, our pleasures. We think those are the things that are going to feel like an arm around the shoulder and make us feel better. And he says, it's all grass, it's all flowers. Like it looks nice for a minute, but it all dies off. And, And like this time of year, we're starting to see it, right? Like that's just the way of the things of the earth, but the word of our God stands forever. Oh, Zion, you who bring good tidings, Get up into the high mountains. Oh, Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, I don't know if it's just because like Thanksgiving is this week and then Christmas is around the corner, but if I hear, you know, good tidings, go say good news in the mountains. I mean, there's like a Christmas carol in there somewhere. I actually heard somebody say this week that when you see Christmas decorations, you know Thanksgiving is close. (laughs) And that's kind of what happens with these prophecies because he's seeing both the first and the second coming, right? So it's almost like what we are living in right now. You know, we start to see some of these little pieces. You look at what's happening in Israel. You look at the prophecies that feels like it lines up with. And we know we are closer than ever before to Christ coming back. And we may not know if it's Thursday, but when you start to see that, you know it's close, right? And so he says, behold your God, that they're actually going to look on his face. And he says the same thing again in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Man, I love the contrast in these two verses. That he has a strong hand and a strong arm and he is going to rule. Like nothing that is not good will happen anymore because he will be the king of kings. And he's a shepherd. He's caring. He's gentle. When we can't walk, he carries us. In fact, you see again, claims from Isaiah that Christ makes to his own deity because look, Lord God, you see God again, all capitals. So that actually says Adonai Yahweh, his personal name, right? That is who is the shepherd. And when Jesus comes, he says, I am the great shepherd. You see that all over the New Testament. My sheep will know my voice. Even more than that, you catch this line that his reward is with him. That when he comes in complete victory as king of kings at the end of days, his reward is with him. Well, you flip to the back of your Bible in the book of Revelation and Jesus at the end of Revelation claims this about himself. Behold, I come and my reward is with me. This shepherd is not just a nice person who's doing his best to help you out. This is Yahweh himself. And look at what he does for his people. He feeds us. He gathers us. He carries us. And he's gentle. See, that's the second key word if you haven't figured it out. He is your shepherd. 
He is your shepherd. I think one of the words as I look at that that is most encouraging to me is that he gently leads. Because I've had times in my life where like Israel, you know, my rebellion has been strong. You know, I said a a prayer that I was going to follow Christ when I was like six years old. And I know that I meant it. But I tell people all the time, there is a lot of life and a lot of temptation you have not seen when you were six. And so as I've gone through my journey, there have been moments where this same kind of feeling that, that Israel had, like my circumstances are broken and I think I broke them. That yes, I finally realized, God, this has been out of line with you. I have to get it in line. And now you carry this regret. And one of the people that was most helpful to me, a mentor of mine, used this picture of a shepherd to help me realize how I needed to continue to trust God. Because the shepherd that he's describing here, he gives strength. But you notice he's giving strength to people who had to be pardoned. And my mentor described a season of his life where really his career went from like good to great to better to best. I mean, it was always upward trajectory, you know, from leading a national organization to leading a multinational organization. And he passed that off to other leaders as he was looking towards the next uh, kind of phase of his career and what he wanted to, to launch next. And instead, it didn't materialize and he found himself without a job for two years. And he talked about how as he went through that, he realized that he had always trusted God, but he'd kind of trusted his skills and abilities too. And so in these two years where it felt like God wasn't coming through, he found it easier and easier to trust in his own skills and abilities. I'll I'll make something work. I'll come up with something. And when it wasn't happening, well, then the, the thoughts start to creep in. The regrets start to creep in. What if God's mad at me? What if, what if, what if? He said it was in that season that he had to learn how God is his shepherd And that sometimes when he can't run and he can't walk and he can't make it happen, he just needs to rest and let God carry him. Realize that God is still the shepherd who is gently leading him. So I don't know if any of those things kind of hit your mind, but there are moments where we look at our circumstances and we wonder if he doesn't care. You know, we look at our own past and we think he couldn't possibly. And it's into those that the shepherd says, hey, let let me tell you how strong I am and how gentle I am. And so I love now the the corner that Isaiah kind of turns in verse 12. Because just as he's finished describing this gentle shepherd, it's almost like he doesn't want you to forget how powerful the shepherd is. Because he starts to pick up speed now as he goes through this chapter to describe exactly what this shepherd is like. Because he is Yahweh himself. He says, Who has measured the waters, all the waters of the earth, in the hollow of his hand? Who has measured heaven with a span? which is the distance from the thumb to the pinky. All of the universe, he holds up his hand, he says, it's about this big, right? Who has calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? And guys, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I pray, I, I feel like that's what I'm doing. <laughs> like, God, I'm, I'm glad we had this meeting this morning. I'd like to give you some advice. Some things have not been going the way that they really ought to be going. Um, not sure what you've been working on, but here's some things I'd like us to do. If, if we take these three steps and we fix these four things, like I have counsel to give to God, right? right? One of the things that he's telling you is, no, 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 it is God who has all the knowledge. He has all the understanding. And if he says that what he does for us is always good, If it is always for our best, even in ways we don't understand, I can trust his counsel. 
that God never finds himself in a place where he's like, I'm not sure what to do. I better go ask Drew. No, flip that thing around, right? Flip that thing around. Right? So he says, who is going to show him understanding? Instead, verse 15, behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. They're counted as small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. Right? Known for its forests, but all of that is nothing. Nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Now, he doesn't mean the people, right? Because God so loved the world, he sent his only son. But he means the strength, the plans, and the power of the nations. Right? Like, let them all band together. So what? I'm God. Right? Like, that's the picture that he's painting for us here. So verse 18, he says, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith casts silver chains. So this is a picture of idol worship. That in Israel, as they absorb culture from their surrounding nations, they start to pick up that, like, I need a little statue of something I can think of as a god. So you go, you you know, you you get in line, you come to the store, you pick out the gold one or the silver one. But I think this next line is kind of funny because he says, uh, whoever's too impoverished for such a contribution... You can't afford the, the, the 14 karat gold or the sterling silver. Well, then they just choose a tree that will not rot and seek for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. All right, so guys, you've got to get this picture because Isaiah is describing like real history. But you imagine somebody walking into the idol store and as the salesman is showing them, well, this is our top of the line model, 14 karat gold. You're really going to like this one. Um... What else do you have? Well, this is sterling silver, a little more affordable for some of our families who are cost conscious. Uh What else do you have? I mean, we got these wooden ones. And then you have to walk through and make sure like it doesn't wobble too much. Oh, sorry. God fell over. Let let me just give him a hand here. God, are we okay, God? Maybe need to wedge a little something under one corner so God doesn't tip over. Right, look, guys, this is what Isaiah is saying. If your God needs your help, you have got the wrong God. If your God is something that you set up, my career, my finances, my bank account, my relationships, the comforts and pleasure of this world, because we probably don't have little statues at home, but those things, those hit too close to home. If your God is something that needs your support, you've got the wrong God. Oh, you, you made your God? Let me show you what my God made. Look at verse 21. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Now, where have I heard that before? Right, that's where our logo comes from. It's from this verse. It's from this God who is that powerful who is that good and that real. He sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. 
Verse 25, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their hosts by number? He calls them all by name. And the strength of his power, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one is missing. Guys, the third key word is that he is your creator. The shepherd who carries you also measures the universe in the span of his hand. And you think about from their point of history, they don't have telescopes, they don't have rocket ships, nobody has put anything into orbit. But just standing on the earth on a clear night, he says, look up. You see those stars? I know everyone by name and I hold them all in place. Now you and I know there's a whole lot more to the universe than what they could see by just looking up. And I'm constantly amazed that the more we learn, the more there is to learn. And, and so I want to show you a video. And I, I, I cut the beginning of this video on planet Earth because, like, I know planet Earth. But it's going to start where the brightest point you see is our sun. And around our sun, some of its closest relative stars that are, like, light years away. And then it's going to zoom out from there to show you how big our creator is. Let's watch. Two dozen neighboring stars glimmer in our wake. One of them, Tau Ceti, resembles our sun. 100 light years, clouds of gas and dust in the Orion arm of the Milky Way surround us. 1,000 light years, the elegant spiral shape of our galaxy is clearly visible. Earth is located here. The Milky Way is part of a community of at least 40 galaxies drawn together by gravity to form what is known as the local group. For the rest of our journey, each point of light we see is no longer an individual star, but an entire galaxy filled with billions of stars. Our local group is adjacent to the Virgo cluster a massive concentration of an estimated 2,000 spiral, elliptical, and dwarf galaxies that emit searing clouds of plasma and dust. This spectacular creation is the heart of a chain of cosmic islands, once shaped by the gravitational pull of 40,000 different galaxies. Collectively, they form the Virgo supercluster, one of the largest structures known to science. But as our view widens, this chain is quickly lost among countless formations of similar composition and size. For Virgo is a drop in a cosmic bucket that may contain as many as 10 million superclusters, each a slender thread in the large-scale construction of the observable universe. Our journey has transported us 45 billion light years from Earth to the outer limits of scientific discovery. A sprawling web of filaments spun from perhaps two trillion galaxies and stars more numerous than grains of sand 
on all the deserts and beaches of the world. So how big is God? He's big enough to create a universe with dimensions so vast they are beyond our comprehension. Yet in the words of the prophet Isaiah, he could measure it all with the fingers of his hand. I don't know what hits you as you watch something like that, but every time it zooms back and you see all that black space and you think, wow, so that's the universe. And then it keeps going. And we're discovering more every day. I read an article just this week. They, they zoomed a telescope in on the sixth star of Orion's sword in that constellation and found objects that they don't know what to do with because they sort of look like big planets, but they're not attached to any stars. So maybe they're stars that didn't quite ignite, but neither of these things make sense in any models that we currently know. And one of the uh, researchers in the Netherlands said this, we're missing something and we don't know what it is. And I love the humility of that. Because <laughs> you know what? We look at like, you know, Israel in 700 BC and we say, well, of course now we know about the Virgo supercluster. And we feel so smart sometimes. And God is so far beyond us. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I hear people, they'll, they'll come and they'll tell me and they're like, you see something like that and God is so big and the universe is so vast. Literally unfathomable. How could he possibly care about my Sunday afternoon, uh, or that guy I got to talk to Monday morning, or that meeting coming up on Tuesday, and I'm not ready. He isn't, I mean, he's doing the stars right now, isn't he? But guys, it's like he anticipates us thinking that. Because look at the next verse in Isaiah 40, verse 27. He speaks to the people of Israel. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And my just claim is passed over by my God. Right? Like he holds all of the universe in place, but, but he overlooked me. He never loses a single one of those stars in trillions of galaxies. But he probably forgot about me. Now he says, have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He is not worn out or overwhelmed by holding every star in place. That wasn't the last ounce of his energy. Guys, he is not some power in our universe holding the universe together. He is so far beyond it. He holds it all together and he holds me together and never gets tired. In fact, that should be a picture not of how I can't imagine he could care about little old me but how his capacity is so enormous he can care about every single moment of every single one of our lives. And I think that's why the last few verses, think about what this says now. That God who sits above the circle of the earth and measures the universe with a span, verse 29 says, he gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
I love the language that he uses here because you realize he's starting to talk to you about you the same way he talks about himself. That God neither faints nor grows weary. Of course, all of us are going to faint and grow weary unless you hope in the Lord and then you will not faint or grow weary. You see, that word renew, when it says he renews your strength, it's not because you spent all of yours and he gives you yours back. The idea is that it's an exchange. He replaces my strength with his strength. And the picture he gives for that is to mount up with wings like eagles, to run without ever getting tired, and to walk without ever falling down. And, and I especially love that eagle one because if, if you know this, the easiest way when you look up and you see birds going in circles looking for rabbits and squirrels to eat, you know, the easiest way to tell the difference between something like a hawk or something like a vulture and an eagle is hawks are always flapping. they got to flap to stay up there. But an eagle soars, spreads its wings, and if you watch, it can just do circles all day without ever flapping once because it's not using its own power. It's actually rise, it's riding warm air thermals that rise from the ground. See, that's the picture that he's giving us. He doesn't say, get back out there and flap a little harder. Flap yourself to death and we'll see if it works. No, he says, spread your wings and ride God's strength. I was talking to a, a friend of mine here at Horizon just a couple of weeks ago. Her name is Linda and we were part of a, a group that did a trip to Israel together where I really got to know her better. Um, but I actually met her when she and her husband Keith were like brand new to Horizon and I was like brand new to Horizon. We had just moved here um, and actually met Keith first before I even knew them because he got in a car accident. And so I actually met him at the hospital uh, talking with him. And that ended up being just a few days before he died from that car accident. Then I met Linda and uh, as, as we were talking a couple of weeks ago, the reason I give you that context is because I realized she's here every single week serving our 0 to 18 ministry helping prepare curriculum for kids and students. And I just thought, every time I see her, it's like she smiles, I smile at her. Hi, Linda, how are you? You catch up a little bit. Remember Israel? That was awesome. And, but I realized I don't think I'd ever said thank you because like, that means she's serving my kids too. So I'm thankful she's serving all of yours. I'm also thankful she's serving mine. And so I told her, hey, just thank you for being so faithful, for serving every day like that, every week. And she said, I think it's such a perfect picture of Isaiah 40, she said she actually started serving when her husband died because she needed comfort from the God of all comfort. But if you think about when it says that in 2 Corinthians, it also says that we comfort others with the comfort he gives us. And that there was a friend here at Horizon who put an arm around her and said, you know, I think one of the things that would probably help you is to start serving others again. You know, to take some of your energy and get back to loving others with God. And she said that that was such a huge part of her healing. And I thought, man, what, a, what an incredible picture of this comfort that God is offering us in Isaiah 40 that is not just the arm around the shoulder, but it is also strength and encouragement to keep moving forward. And I'm so thankful that she let me share that with you because it's one of those things like, you know, you know how this happens, right? You walk up to someone, you think, I'm going to encourage them today. Hey, thank you for serving. And then you walk away like, wow, she had everything I needed to hear. 
I got the comfort in that moment that I needed for what I'm walking through right now. I found the strength. And so that's actually the, the final key word and our key takeaway. He is your strength. This Messiah, this Savior, Jesus Christ, Yahweh in the flesh. And so I want you to think about those three words that he gave, that when he gives power to the weak, when he renews our strength, and he tells us we can soar, run, and walk. So maybe you just ask yourself, even as you enter this holiday season, where do you need to trust God's strength instead of flapping yourself to death? Where do you just need to soar on his strength? And maybe for you it's run. Like where do you need to move forward, keep going, persevere, instead of being held back by fear or regret? Maybe for you it's walk. I think sometimes that's the hardest one. Like, God, I'm ready. Let's run. Let's do it. Let's soar. Let's see amazing things happen. I can see my house from here. I love this, God. Higher, higher. Let's go higher. And sometimes he says, slow down. We're just going to walk for a little bit. No, God, walking is slow. I want to get there now. I want to see how this ends. And maybe for you, it's where do you need to just slow your pace and enjoy walking with your creator. It may even be, where do you feel like you can't walk much further and you need to just let your shepherd carry you? Can I pray that way for you right now? Lord, I'll pray that way for myself too, just, just for all of us, Lord, as we go through our lives. We know that there are these places that we need your comfort more than we need anything else. We need your arm around us. We need your strength. We need your encouragement. So Lord, as we sit in quiet moments, as we talk to you, would you help us? Would you show us where you want us to soar? Where you want to give us strength to run? Where you may slow us down to just walk even though the journey is long? And to realize that the whole time you are carrying us. And we will thank you for that in the name of our shepherd and our creator, Jesus Christ. Amen.